Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. We're back with another episode in our In Case You Missed It series. We're still working on upcoming episodes that we'll be releasing in the fall, but we're thrilled today to bring you a podcast that I can honestly say completely reshaped how I think about race and how I think about America. So it's a really phenomenal podcast, and this is such a deep series that we strongly recommend you listening to it cover to cover. Now, this podcast was released back in 2017, and while it isn't directly about school integration, I think you'll see just how relevant it is. I'm minding my own business one day, looking in on my Facebook feed. It's the summer of 2016, in the frenzy of the campaign season, a few weeks after Donald J. Trump got enough delegates to clinch the Republican nomination. That's John B. Wynn, and he's the audio program director at Duke Center for Documentary Studies. Someone's posted a video clip from the daytime talk show The View. The headline is about the comedian and actor D.L. Hughley and something he said on the show. It snags my interest, and I click. But, um, let's talk about politics already. I mean, we often talk about, you know, the, what's going on with Donald Trump. Did you ever think he, he would even get this far? No, but I think I'm not shocked that he is. You're not? Why? No, I mean, because I think that ultimately America's aspirational. Like, to me, uh, Obama is what we would like to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Donald Trump and his supporters are what we are. Hey. They are what you we right. are. Wait, wait. Listen, we, we want to be different. Like you, We'll put Harriet Tubman on the front of a $20 bill, mm-hmm. but leave Andrew Jackson on the back. So we have a slave on the front and a slave owner in the back. So even when black people own money, we still got a supervisor. So, uh... <laughs> the last bit is funny, but it was the part before that that stopped me in my tracks. This bit. Obama is what we would like to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Donald Trump and his supporters are what we are. Hey. I have to admit, my reaction at the time was, hold on a second. First of all, Obama won the whole shebang. Twice. Trump's going to be the nominee for one party, but the whole country hasn't elected him to anything yet, and it won't happen. You may remember that's what most people thought at the time. Besides that, I bristled at Hughley's we. I know it's we the people and all that, but when you put it in a sentence like this... Donald Trump and his supporters are what we are. Wasn't sure I wanted to be implicated in that we. Of course, Trump did win. Say what you like about the perfect series of gusts that blew him across the finish line. Hillary's emails, Vladimir Putin, James Comey, Jill Stein's voters, the Electoral College. Trump won. And as for that we... It seems fair to say that D.L. Hughley, who's black, was talking about a nation for all its growing diversity, a nation still dominated by people who look not like him, but like me. 70% of voters were white in 2016, and 58% of white voters chose Trump. The podcast is called Seen on Radio, and their second season was called Seeing White. I'll let John tell you what makes this approach to talking about race a little bit different. The race beat in American journalism usually involves pointing our gaze and our cameras and microphones at people of color. That goes for me, too. Over several decades as a reporter and documentary maker, I've told the stories of black folk from Chicago to the Mississippi Delta, Latinos from North Carolina to the apple orchards of Washington State, Native Americans from the Navajo Nation in the Southwest to Ojibwe country up north. I'm proud of a lot of that work, but if I think about how I built those stories, 
I've often treated whiteness like the proverbial elephant in the room. You might hear about some white individuals or white-run institutions, the alleged bad apples, the discriminators. But like most American reporters, I've usually left white people as a group, the white race, unnamed. In the coming batch of episodes, a series we call Seeing White, turning the lens around, looking straight at white America, and at the notion of whiteness itself. Where did this idea of a white race come from? God? Nature? Or is it man-made? And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? How has the meaning of white changed over the centuries, and how does it function now? The stories that we carry around about whiteness and what it means, stories we may not even know we're carrying, but we are, all of us, are those stories true? So as you might have guessed, John Mewen is white. And while that gives him some insight into whiteness, he's incredibly fortunate to have a partner in this podcast to help him see his blind spots. While I, Andrew, only have that shrew of a white woman as my co-host. <laughs> hey, my name is Chenjirai Kumanika. I'm a professor of critical cultural media studies, cultural industries, and things like that. Currently, I teach at Clemson University in the Department of Communication. In the fall 2017, I'll be starting in Rutgers School of Inf- uh, Communication and Information. And, uh, yeah. So Chenjirai will make regular appearances in this series. People who study this stuff often say that white people ourselves are not very good at seeing whiteness. On the contrary, we tend to have blind spots, large and small, about the way it all works. For this introduction, Chenjirai and I put some thoughts and worries on the table about the series itself. I like the focus on whiteness because I feel like, in general, when we're talking about race and ethnicity, the focus tends to be on, you know, people of color and, uh, you know, whiteness just kind of is invisible. And so I like that. But you know, there's like a couple of things I'm concerned about. Like when you say it right off the gate, there's a couple of things that just come up like, oh, I hope we don't go in this direction. Right. Tell me. Well, this is the, I'll tell you, the big thing is this. There's a tendency in this country to frame the discussion about race and ethnicity and oppression in terms of something called race relations, <laughs> you know, and this, this overwhelmingly focuses on the individual attitudes you know, of people, almost like race, racism is like this disease and the, and the overwhelming puzzle to solve is like, who has it? Yeah, right. Exactly. That's, that's how we think about it, isn't it? And how are people, how are we getting along sort of, are we nice to each other or not? I think the thing that these conversations really need is something that people are deeply illiterate with is this issue of structural racism where institutionalized patterns of exploitation and oppression that are that are like racialized in certain ways and really just a more complex engagement with how power works and what race and ethnicity has to do with it. You know, this is to me almost distinct from this problem of it's not distinct, I guess, but almost distinct from race relations or prejudice. And so I, I really have a problem with people framing like that. Uh, and, and there's an idea that people have talked about that you can have, you can have racism without individual racists, because systems and structures have been set up in a way 
that exactly. they sort of run this way on their own at this point, right? Or at least that's, that's, that's a, right. That's yeah. a thesis to be looked at, right? I mean, I, I mean, I think, and in a way, that's like more worrisome in a way, right? It's like not just when you have like the person who we all know is a bigot, but actually when you can have a system where people are not, they don't have those attitudes, but somehow they can be incentivized to participate in a, in a system of oppression. That's, that's what I'm more worried about, you know? Yeah. I have a worry too. Uh, and a, and a disclaimer that I would want to make about, about this project and that is, I'm concerned that people will look at the title of the series, Seeing White, and they'll think, oh, this is, this is a series about uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis and the KKK again. Oh, yeah. Oh, for, yeah. And yes. I want people to know that that's not, that's not what we're up to here. Uh, please, please. <laughs> yeah. Those folks, right? those folks have had, have, have, are having their moment, but uh, it's not going to be on this show. Um, right. I mean, yes. who knows? There might be, you know, there'd be some overt racism that gets referred to and so on. But mostly what we want to talk about is, uh, you know, the rest of us um, who are not overtly stated white supremacists and, and sort of how, how things go down among the rest of us. Yeah, I'm 100% in support of that. I mean, I just think like, you know, it's hard because there is it is appalling when you see some of these crazy examples of bigotry and now people coming into explicit white supremacy and you know white nationalism and things like that but the thing i'm much more interested in is the kind of whiteness that's just institutionalized it's there you know it just structures every day well here i go everyday interactions but also <laughs> Uh, every you know, just patterns and how institutions are set up and all these other kinds of things, right? Who has what rights, how resources are distributed. Those things are just in, just sort of ingrained. They're just with us there invisibly, like the water that we're in. And that's what I'm more interested in. That's our challenge, to go on this journey together and see if we can get a little better at seeing the water. So I got to the end of that first episode and I was completely hooked. I immediately downloaded the other 13 and I binged them over the course of a weekend. And I think one of the reasons it really resonated with me was that I realized that so much of the thinking that I do about school integration has this idea of structural racism at its root, right? We, we talk all the time about desegregation. We talk about resistance to desegregation. We talk about colonization. We talk about white supremacy culture. All of these things are really about structural racism, yeah. right? Like a, a racism that that doesn't require active, explicit racism, but just requires us to continue to contribute. Yeah. And like by contribute, you mean that carrying on the way we have been carrying on, right? And furthermore, conflating all of the ways we have been carrying on as the way things are. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like it's it's not that these systems are actually the natural state of the world, but but we seem to think that they are. Right. Yeah. And, and quite to the contrary, actually, is like if you listen to the whole series, you see these these systems were built explicitly for the purpose of maintaining white dominance. But now that they're in place, it, it really only takes sort of minimal intentional maintenance combined with. <laughs> 
like passive acquiescence from most people for them to just continue to perpetuate. Yeah, this isn't this isn't about like avowed white supremacists, but just people who continue to participate without recognizing or maybe even willfully ignoring, right? The, right. the implications of the system they're participating in. Yeah. And so, you know, while education is only referenced a few times in this series and school segregation even fewer, it it feels like it's really important to the work of integrated schools. Yeah. You know, much of what we are working against is structural racism. Yeah. And it's a structural racism that I think is like embodied in our idea of whiteness. And, you know, as they say in the series, if you can't see white, it's hard to know how to like push back against that. Yeah. So we strongly suggest going and listening to the entire thing. But today we're just going to share some of the highlights. And and just a brief disclaimer, you know, some of the clips we're going to play may feel like a, a pretty big leap um, without the context that sets them up. So yeah. if you find yourself hesitant to go along with them, just listen to the whole series. I think that, that in the context of the whole series, they make a really compelling case. But just in playing some highlights, we maybe lose a bit of that. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's uncomfortable at times, right, to listen to. But the history they're presenting, it's just really difficult to argue with. Like this bit from episode two, which is which is a good deep dive into into how race was made. When I was in high school in Minnesota in the late 1970s, mm-hmm. I, re- I can still remember very vividly in my social studies textbook, the three races oh, of yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. And I can see the images yeah. of the mongoloid, the caucasoid, and the negroid. Uh-huh. Um, it was presented as a scientific biological That's right. fact. That's right. That's right. So um, is it a scientific biological fact? <laughs> The three races, um, in the order usually presented, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, Caucasoid at the top, uh, is not a biological fact and only became science in the sense of anthropologists said that this is true in the 1940s. That's Nell Irvin Painter, historian, Princeton professor emerita, and author of The History of White People. In this episode, we're going back. Well, not really to the beginning. Science now tells us that in the beginning of the human story, people evolved in Africa from one common ancestor a couple hundred thousand years ago. We're all kin and all African if you just go back far enough. Over time, some people walked out of Africa and spread across the world, The branches of the family that spent thousands of years in colder places without a lot of sun, they lost much of their melanin and turned a bunch of different shades depending on the conditions where they were. That's how we became a species ranging from the darkest brown to the lightest pink beige and everything in between, shades of brown with an array of yellowish and reddish tinges. All of that explains why people look different It does not explain the wildly inconsistent and ever-changing groupings that people have concocted over the last few centuries. It doesn't explain my high school textbook. So we believe we need to know how we got this thing called race, if we're going to understand racism. Suzanne Plissick is with the Racial Equity Institute. The team is based in Greensboro, North Carolina, but travels the country doing anti-racism workshops. I recorded Suzanne and her colleagues a few months ago in Charlotte. REI's courses are not diversity training. Their approach is not, 
kumbaya, let's get along, let's tolerate one another. Instead, they drop a whole lot of knowledge, especially history, but also sociology, biology. We know, for example, since the Human Genome Project, that we are what percentage genetically the same as human beings? 99 point what? Nine. 99.9. Genetically the same. There is more genetic variation in a flock of penguins than there is in the human race. There is more genetic variation within groups that have come to be called races than there is across groups that have come to be called races. Statistically likelier that I am closer to you genetically. Suzanne, who is white, points at a black man. Than I am to you. And then a white woman. Anthropologists finally say, and it is way past due, that race is anthropological nonsense. Is that the same thing as saying it's not real? No. No, because it's real. It is powerfully real. It's politically and socially real. So we need to know how did we get it, and what we say is we constructed it. We constructed it. We constructed it. It's not the natural way of things, but we have constructed it so powerfully over and over again using science (laughs) that that we're able to believe that it is the natural way of things. Yeah, and then that that sort of affects everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I would say one of the best parts of the series in my mind is that every episode ends with a conversation between John and Dr. Kumanyika, sort of rehashing what they learned from that episode. And this next clip is from the end of episode two, which in addition to what you just heard, also featured the brilliant Ibram X. Kendi, who uh, is the author of Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Yeah, and he has a new book coming out in the end of August uh, titled How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I'm really looking forward to reading. Yes. Hey, Chandrai, it's me again. Hey. Hey, what's going on, John? How you doing, man? You know, and in the piece we heard Suzanne Plissick uh, from the Racial Equity Institute say that race is not scientifically real, and yet it's very real politically and, and socially. It's, it's kind of a tricky thing to, to make sense of, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I got to say, when I, when I really am putting on, like when I'm being sympathetic, I can kind of understand why it's confusing to people, because for people who haven't thought about this on one level, that's what you're trying to get them to understand. Right. Like the science, you know, the genes, the genetic diversity. And you're like, listen, you know, scientifically, race is like not real. It's not it's not a thing. It's like race isn't real biologically, but it is very real as a as a way that society has been structured. And there's real, you know, the effects of race as a social construct are real. The reason we can't stop talking about it is because we can predict wealth distribution, police killing, uh, all kinds of other, uh, you know, sort of life expectancy factors, health issues based on race, you know, access to schools, because society has been organized around a concept that is not biologically real. And then there's another thing about race to me that's, that's also confusing, which is that we want people to understand race as like this systemic thing, like this structural thing. 
that is like in institutions and is in patterns of, you know, the way rights and resources are distributed. And it's like a structural thing. It's not about just attitudes, like just about, you know, like your distant cousin who's a bigot. Right. But we also do use the term racist for that, too. Right. So so I think that's confusing, too, because those seem like different things to me. Right. And and that connects in and we talked about that last time and 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 it connects in a really significant way with the point that I think Professor uh Kendi is trying to make in his with his history of racist ideas in the US, which is that he argues that we basically have the cause and effect relationship backwards. Right? That we're sort of in the habit of thinking that the problem with race and racism starts with attitudes that people look at other people and and they look different or come from a different place. And so there's this tendency to look down on that person or to have prejudice toward them and, and therefore to then think, well, I guess it's okay to exploit or mistreat this person. And that's the history of racism. That's how this all has happened. And his argument is that it, that it goes exactly in the other direction. Right. And it is. It's a weird thing. Like the ignorance is what caused the exploitation. And I think that's totally wrong. Right. I think because if you think about it, you know, when Columbus on his like first and second voyage over to the so-called New World, you know, the mission was exploitation before they even met up with the Arawaks or the Taino Indians. You know, like the whole issue was we're going to set up colonies and, and try to take land and try to get resources Right. And it wasn't like, you know, they just decided to do that once they encountered these people and didn't understand them. And slavery, too. I mean, people went to Africa to to steal them some people. They didn't they didn't go, you know, as tourists and then look around and say, oh, look, look, there's these people who. Right. They, right. <laughs> we think are inferior. And therefore, and, I guess we'll. And, and, therefore, and, and what are we going to do with them? Yeah, they didn't they didn't they didn't say like, oh, man, here's these people. You know, they're like subhuman and like three fifths of a human being. So what can we do? Oh, let's create slavery. No, it, it, I mean, but that's kind of like what I grew up on and what people think. They just didn't know. And it's like, no, actually, no. What they knew was that there was an economy. They had like rice and cotton and other things that had sugar that had to be um, produced to make this economy go. And they wanted cheap labor and they enslaved people. And then and then they later sort of deployed the, the science and all these other cultural forms to match and support the idea that they could exploit these people because they were inferior. So it's it really to me. Even though, you know, once you really look at that, the idea that exploitation comes first is, is just, you know, it's just the more <laughs> rational explanation. No. I think it's easier for people to think about it like it was it's all just a matter of attitudes and not understanding. And like maybe people just didn't sit down and eat enough dinners together or something like that, because when you think of it that way, you can make it about individuals who didn't understand where when you understand the way that exploitation was sort of baked into the project of Western imperialism and, you know, the development of the United States, then you have to go and question much more fundamental structures and much more fundamental ideas about about our culture and all these other things. So I think it's, it's, it's harder to have to look at that. Harder indeed. So next up, uh, after a deep dive into the financial and the social control incentives that led to the creation of whiteness, Dr. Kuminyik is back to highlight one of the big challenges with a series focused on whiteness. In a way, the effort to get people to come together under the banner of whiteness 
is sort of always been about power and exploitation. So I don't know what that means about trying to salvage the idea of like good whiteness. You know, that's mm. something that you got to wrestle with. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it seems like the the whole project was related to exploitation. And so if you identify that way, it's, I, I, yeah, I don't envy you in terms of having to uh, try to think about what that means, you know. There's a lot more that could be said about all that. What becomes of a European American's identity in the face of the real history of whiteness in this country? None of us chose the color of our skin or this racial caste system we were born into, but we do have choices now that we're here. I agree with Chenchurai. Those of us deemed white can't just shed that identity in some easy way. We don't get to be generic individuals standing outside the race drama. We're in it. We need to own our whiteness, including the ways it benefits us every day. The little ways, the life and death ways, the ways in which the very structures of society were set up to our advantage. And we need a conversation we're not having now about how deep we need to go to remake this thing. Seems to me there's a way to acknowledge we're wrapped up in the whiteness project that our forebears created without believing it's really real or having allegiance to it. So th- this piece hit me really hard because like, I don't know that we have any good models to look to for quote unquote good whiteness. Yeah. Right. Like if the entire concept of whiteness was always about power and exploitation, what is it? what does good whiteness even mean? Right. I mean, I think in some ways this is the task that that lays ahead of us. I mean, it's certainly something we think about a lot at integrated schools, right? Can we find new ways of being white? Yeah. Trying to tie this back to school integration that, that one of the most promising ways to think about new ways of being white, right. Is through being in community that isn't all white. Right. And that doesn't only value white ways of being, you know, I'm not talking about like, Let's celebrate Kwanzaa or Dia de los Muertos and donning marigolds, right? right? Like, but but about being in community and and struggling with that and and what that means. Yeah, right. Creating new experiences for our kids, for ourselves, right? That uh, that allow us to discover new ways of being white while we work to try to decenter our own whiteness. Yeah. <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not easy, and I don't think there's like a destination we're going to get to, right? But it, it's a it's a journey and. It's probably a really long one. It was a long one that got us here. But, you know, by putting our kids into integrating schools, giving them whatever anti-racism skills we have, all of the anti-racism skills we can find, (laughs) and then challenging them to sort of, you know, see that and to talk about that experience that maybe through that they get closer to a better whiteness and then their children even better and so on. I think I might have heard someone say before, but this is generational work. Yeah, yeah, I may have said that once or twice. Right. But, you know, also thinking about this, like, new ways of being white and integrating schools, I don't know, like, there's there's something also that's that's bothering me maybe a little bit about it. Like, we can't move forward, not really, not truly, if that's our goal in this space either, right? 
If that's like the only goal of being there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right. I, I think what I'm saying is like that these experiences can't be designed for this outcome. We can't use black and brown folks to discover ourselves, right? Right. <laughs> right. But we can right. and should move toward better ways of being white within meaningful relationships with people who aren't all white. Yeah, it's a fine line to walk and it's it's complicated because it's – there's just so much history that has gotten us to this point. Yeah. Fortunately, seeing white takes us all the way back to the founding of our nation. So, Chandrai, have you uh, have you ever been to the Jefferson Monument in D.C.? No, I don't. I don't think so. It's uh, it's impressive. It's inspiring. I think the first time I was there, which was probably twenty twenty five years ago, I don't think it literally gave me chills, but figuratively, I remember. Th- being quite inspired as I am by the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, you're kind of looking at Jefferson as a key founding father and looking at his sort of character and ethical failings on one hand, if you want to think about it that way, and then his beliefs, right? Looking really zooming on his beliefs, which maybe some people were less familiar with. I think that there's this way that people treat the documents founding documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as somehow separate from his from those beliefs. And people treat it like maybe the Declaration of Independence and our founding documents and thus our country really rises above his wild beliefs, you know, racist beliefs and character failings and his actions. Yeah, his, and his actions, right. But I don't see it that way, right? I see it like, if you look at what Ibram Kendi is arguing, is the Declaration of Independence wasn't really about ideas of universal freedom. It was about the people who signed the document getting, you know, becoming free of intervention and control of the of the British crown. Right. So they wanted to be free to do basically more of what they were doing, which was to profit from slavery and other forms of exploitation. So the life that they're talking about, like when they talk about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, the life they're talking about definitely isn't the lives of people of color, African-Americans. The liberty they're talking about isn't wasn't for us. And their pursuit of happiness was contingent on our exploitation. Right. 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 And that's and that's actually in that's encoded in the document. And that's a core, you know, founding document that we refer to. Many people refer to with great affection and nostalgia and as proof of of what this country is about. You know, I mean, if we're going to if we're going to give America a national character, this is the character. Yeah. Although I think that most people would agree that that there has been progress in terms of human rights and civil rights since 1776. It has been scratching and clawing and fighting all the way right against a reactionary force uh that has that has won a whole lot of the time and i would say whatever social justice victories have been won is not because of america it's despite america it's resisting america like you're resisting the the dominant laws of the land even right now right like you what are you resisting you're resisting you know, the criminal justice system of the country. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you, right. you can say if you're going to if you want to unless you want to say the criminal justice system is not an important part of America. 
it, I mean, that's, that's, yo, it's like, John, it's not fun for me to say this. Mm-hmm. But, like, people are surviving despite America. But isn't it interesting that people, including Martin Luther King, for example, have actually appealed to uh, to those words, those founding words, in arguing for social justice, and actually in uh, in the March on Washington, what people think of as his "I Have a Dream" speech, he, he he talks about a promise that America made that it's defaulting on, a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, right, so he's appealing to the Declaration of Independence. Right. As something that was promised, that so he, so he seems to be at least maybe just rhetorically appealing to that as well. If this is what the country says it's about, let's let's be that, right? That's a powerful rhetorical appeal, and for that reason, I understand why activists and organizers have not taken that off the table. But you know, I'm making a risky move of kind of pushing back against Dr. King a little bit, but it really wasn't a promise. That's not what Jefferson was promising. He wasn't promising the thing that, that, that Dr. King is talking about. Not He wasn't promising it to black people. Right, right, as we heard. So, I mean, if we're, if we're honest about what Jefferson meant, right, like I, I feel the power of that rhetorical appeal, but if we're honest about what Jefferson meant, he was not promising that to black people. So, you know, it's I mean, it's a it's a tricky thing. Like, I think in different rhetorical situations, you know, different audiences, I understand why people want to invoke that sense of patriotism by invoking those words. But I think that that comes with a cost. And the cost is that using that word, referring to Jefferson as though Jefferson did make a promise that was about going to appeal to all people and was about justice for all people. That allows a lot of folks to indulge in the fantasy that that's actually what Jefferson meant. And he actually did stand for that. And then we can do that intentional forgetting that he owned human beings and argued and fought for his right to do that and refuse to release those human beings from bondage. Right. And then wrote documents that weren't inconsistent with that Mm -hmm. because he wasn't talking about those people. Yeah. You know, Howard Zinn has this line where he's like, it's not about indicting people in absentia. That's not the point. That's not the ultimate point of this. What I what I want us to try to understand is that if for people who want to who are about transformative change and giving people equal rights and, you know, liberation is the language some people use decolonization, Black Lives Matter. What you have to understand is. We're trying to become something this country has never been. Yeah, so this line, I just want to say it again and again, but we are trying to become something the country has never been. Mm, Yeah. Dr. Kumanika has got got pearls of wisdom uh, at every turn. I think if you listen to the series just for that, it would be totally worth it. (laughs) Yeah. But... They also have a bunch of other amazing guests as well. Here I'm talking with Shannon Sullivan. She's a philosophy professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. One of her books is called Revealing Whiteness, The Unconscious Habits of White Privilege. Good white people set up 
uh, differences that often are class differences. There are also regional differences between the white people who are supposedly not racist. Those are the good ones. And a lot of dumping that goes on against the bad white people. Sullivan says these strategies are usually unconscious and well-intended. They come from an impulse to not participate in racism. But that doesn't make them helpful. One of the strategies is colorblindness, insisting I don't see race. It's almost like a pride in being completely clueless about the world in which we live as white people if we can't see how our own whiteness, along with other races, is operating in it. And that actually allows... uh, allows white supremacy and the other things I've been talking about to hum along quite happily and unchallenged. If you can't see race, then how in the heck are you going to see racism? So so class versus race is one of those themes that come up in school conversations and certainly integrated schools stuff all the time, right? Yeah. Like I hear so often white parents talk about how much they really love, quote, diversity at their school. And, you know, what we often see is what Nicole Hannah-Jones calls this curated diversity, where it's, yes. <laughs> you know, a school full of just enough different shades of kids tumbling out of an Audi at drop-off, <laughs> Right. Right, right, right. And people will say, right, they'll say they prefer a school just without too much poverty. It doesn't matter like what the race is. It's just, it's hard. But we also know like there's pretty compelling research from Chase Bellingham and Matthew Hunt that the higher the percentage of black kids in a school, the less likely white parents are to say that they would consider sending their kid to that school, even if all the other factors are the same. Yeah. So while socioeconomic status is like definitely a factor in school segregation. We can't let go of the racial aspects that are going on here. I think there's a lot of reasons for this resistance to let go of race. Mm. And one reason is that societies like ours are built on great wealth disparity and you need an exploited class for that. In some ways, that's what wealth is. Like the history of wealth in the Western world is inextricably linked to exploitation. Extracting wealth from someone else's labor, right? That's right, yeah. And so when you produce that exploited class and that labor using the concept of race, you also produce a whole social order that lasts for a long time based on race. And what that means for us right now is there's a lot of people who didn't consciously participate in that order who have an investment in it. They have an investment in, and they have an investment in whiteness. George Lipset calls it a possessive investment in whiteness. And you can see it in, in the stakes involved in people's neighborhoods and their schools, who gets to be management, who gets to, you know, whose history and culture get taught, whose mascots, you know, all these kinds of things, right? And you see people are really invested in that. Like, they don't want to let go, right? Yeah. There's a culture of, of silence. Something about the dominant... American culture where we're supposed to be silent about certain kinds of things. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, well, and when the one word you used, silence, I think it sounds like what you're getting at is that in conjunction or another layer along with this kind of structural system of white supremacy, there's a cultural layer in which it's expected. It's part of our culture as white people to not want to rock that boat too hard, Mm -hmm. right? To not take too radical a position about, and this is maybe the the issue about 
you know, sort of liberal folks sort of holding the right kinds of sympathetic attitudes towards people of color and about social justice and so on, but not really ultimately doing all that much to change it. Because that might entail actually really giving up some power and some, some of the advantages that come, that come with whiteness. The culture of silence, right? Like, this is it. Yeah. And, and I feel like this is what has allowed segregation to continue and school segregation to continue. If we don't talk about it, we don't have to see it. Right, or do anything about it, right? And, <laughs> and with like the, quote, good white liberals that Dr. Kuminika and John talk about a little, like, you know, we can protest the kids in cages at the border or police brutality in our cities and then still go back to our white privileged segregated schools because as a society, we're just completely silent about that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking about what, what John said about giving up some power, right? Like that, and, and this is something we've talked about a lot in our podcast, and I don't want to belabor it here. But I think in the in the context of school segregation, we're talking about giving up power in order to be part of making a new and different kind of power that's rooted in community. So I just don't want it to be like misunderstood that going to an integrating school is a sacrifice. Right, right. The power you're giving up is like the the power to hoard opportunity, not yeah. that that somehow it is a sacrifice that you have to go to a school with kids who don't look like you. Yeah. One of the recurring features in the series that I, I really love is this workshop from the Racial Equity Institute. And <laughs> particularly founder Dina H. Green has a lecture all about all the ways that government policies have really explicitly favored white people since the founding of our nation. Whiteness, the color of white. It means so much different to me today than it did once upon a time. I used to associate white with the color of clouds or the color of snow. But now, whether through my personal interactions or the media or just society in general, unfortunately, the color white represents power, supremacy, privilege. That's Catherine Foster, who lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. She was reflecting while driving in her car after the first day of the Racial Equity Institute's anti-racism workshop last winter. I loaned Catherine a recorder and asked her to share some of her thoughts. I also gave a recorder to Dan Pliska. I'm wondering if this class is approaching this subject from a negative point of view. We did go through some of the history of racism, of all that went into creating this, but I tend to be an individual that tries to look at getting ahead from a positive standpoint. I do see people that don't have advantage, people that get stuck in systems and don't know how to navigate systems. And it's more about navigation than it is about racism. It's about having the drive, the will, and the energy to move forward. 
You can't just lay back and say, bestow it on me. At the top of the episode, we heard from two white participants in the REI workshop. I sat down with each of them after Dina's talk. I can't find anything in it to be proud of who I am. And even though my story or my parents' story or my grandparents' story is reality, was it built on lies? Or do you know what it feels like to be the last to find something out? Everybody around you knows something that you don't know? That's how I feel. Catherine Foster is 43. She told me she'd been required to attend the anti-racism workshop as part of an internship she was doing at the time. I'm an intern and I'm also a court-appointed child advocate for abused and neglected children. And I am working on my master's degree for social work because I want to, I want to advocate for oppressed and vulnerable groups. Um, you know, I, I don't think that I had any real particular reaction to the affirmative action thing. Dan Pliska is 60. He's manager of the risk management division, dealing with things like insurance, for the city, county, and school system in Charlotte. Surprisingly to me, he says he didn't learn anything new from Dina's affirmative action talk. Dan is originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He says there was economic stratification among white people, too, and he talks about the anti-Polish sentiment that some people in his family faced at one time. Do we have problems? Absolutely, we have problems, but it's not just black, white, Asian, white. It, it's, it's everybody. Hey, Chenjirai. How you doing? Hey, what's going on, John? How you doing, man? Doing all right. But I just right. have, you know, my question for you today is, what are we going to do about all this reverse racism <laughs> out here? Yeah, reverse racism. That's right. But, uh, okay, so what did you hear in the, um, in the reactions to the workshop from from the folks that I talked to, the white folks who were there uh, as participants, Catherine and Dan. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, with Catherine, I understand what she's struggling with. It's a lot to process. She just got all that knowledge dropped on her by Dina H. Green. And I mean, if you're just learning, like if you've been living with this information or stuff like that for a while, maybe it's not as big of a deal. But if, you, if you're just getting that and your whole, and you realizing like, man, your whole identity as a white woman and your whole world is built on this lies and, you know, a kind of oppression to grapple with that really in an honest way. This means you have to find like kind of find a new way to be in the world. So I get that. And you hear her kind of struggling with that. That's what I hear with Catherine. Um, but, you know, my empathy has a limit because I just think about how much was needed to bring her to a point of facing some things about this country and about whiteness that 
a lot of people already get. I mean, she had to be in a workshop that she paid for and then be forced to listen to like this history since 1618. And then all of that just for her to begin to grapple and go, hmm, maybe, you know, maybe whiteness is maybe there's some, you know, and it's like, I, you know, I guess I'm glad somebody's doing that work. <laughs> but I don't know if it's worth our energy as black and brown people to drag folks kicking and screaming to acknowledge some, you know, some of these basic facts. Yeah. I guess what you're saying is it feels pretty overwhelming to think that if you, you can have a, uh, a workshop that is that concentrated, you know, in terms of, and, and that kind of well done and just with this serious dose of information and how many people can do it. Right. That's what it takes. <laughs> and, and apparently the, REI is in great demand, and they're doing these all the time. I'm glad. But then Dan sits through that session and apparently is completely unmoved. Oh, yeah, man. And I guess what I heard from Dan, with with all respect to Dan, uh, was a you know a kind of deflecting strategy, whether mm. conscious or unconscious. And you know he says yes, racism is a problem, including white racism, but there's racism in all directions. And, you know, he's treating um, racism again as, as just a matter of attitudes and prejudices. So, so black folks, you know, engaging in colorism or Chris Rock telling a joke uh, that stereotypes Asian people, which let's be clear, he, he shouldn't have done that. But Dan seems to be kind of flattening things out so that those, that that kind of racism is, is the same as systemic institutional racism that has given most of the spoils to white people for hundreds of years, right? So it, it, it also seems to be kind of a way of ending the conversation when he says mm. that, well, you know, we all have, there's racism that goes in all directions. When I listened to like the mental games that Dan was kind of playing as he tried to come to grips with this, you ever hear that phrase, watch whiteness work? Yeah, I, actually, I see it on Twitter a lot. Yeah, and I think in this series, we've seen that whiteness works a lot of ways, but in this space where there's like this this willful denial, at the same time, there's ignorance, but then there's like this denial. You know, you can just look past evidence. Like, Dina Green lays out all this history, all this evidence, all these facts. She's naming each policy, this, this, and that. And then you, it's like, yo, you really just going to look past all of that? And it's just like, oh, well, yeah, sure, we got problems. And I, and I think that when the case is made for you like that and you still cannot acknowledge what that means, you have to flatten it out, make everything even Steven. That's not somebody who doesn't get it. I think that mm. that's somebody I mean, on the surface, it just looks like ignorance. But now you now you can't say it's ignorance because this case was just made for you. So. Right. That's somebody who, to me, that's not somebody who doesn't get it. That's somebody who gets it and kind of refuses to acknowledge it because they have some sense of what they're going to have to give up. <laughs> and they have some sense that this is going to mean, coming to grips with this means I'm going to have to change the world I'm comfortable with. I think there are lots of things in our culture when you're white that are reassuring us over and over again 
that the country is basically noble, that the country basically means well. Oh, yeah. And I guess that's my experience is having to learn over and over again, you know, the lesson that, that that's, uh, you know, that that's kind of a dream. James Baldwin said, not everything that's faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. The other word that that comes to mind if I think about sort of what uh, struck me about the, the the experience and the talk was uh, is complicity, right? That if if you're white and you lived in the U.S. for more than a few minutes, uh, you've almost certainly benefited from white supremacy, and very likely in tangible dollars and cents ways. So if you're white, you you, you know you can't really make a claim to having been on the sidelines and not a party to this story of uh, of exclusion and exploitation because you have benefited from it. I think a lot of people feel like they didn't individually discriminate and so they're not responsible. But you know, that's how attitudes work, right? Like that's how individual acts of hate work. But when you have institutionalized a power arrangement, that creates passive least resistance. That means that you've set up the society in a way where all everybody has to do is go through it in the way that's least hard, that's convenient. Everybody just has to wake up and do what's convenient, what's the easiest, and they'll, mm-hmm. be, they'll be reproducing that system. And so what it really means is that you benefit from the system and you reproduce it just because you woke up every day and did what was the easiest thing to do to get through you know and and i think that that kind of power is and and that kind of process of benefiting is what we have to come to grips with so if you're not seeing the links to school segregation in this piece, uh, might be time to go back to the first episode of our podcast. Right? <laughs> like this is the smog we talk about, right? This system whereby all anybody has to do is what is easiest, is what is expected of us. And and we white people benefit from it, right? Like it's yeah. it's the same system that created the segregated schools that we have today. And, and when it comes to schools, that path of least resistance, that just quote, waking up and doing what is convenient – it's like it has an extra degree of power because now it's also understood to mean being a, quote, good parent. That's it. And like how we have constructed, constructed mm. this idea of good parent, we've made it really hard to not be complicit in not benefiting from these structures. But like we're just constantly recreating them. And so I'm struck also like the the willful denial piece from this clip, mm. like that this workshop participant can get all this knowledge and still come out the other side thinking the way he does, right? <laughs> but this is where our construction of good parent does a ton of work because we can hear all the things about segregation and, and, you know, these inequitable systems of oppression and say, well, but, you know, I'm being good parent by getting the best for my kids. It's the, you know, well, I grew up poor, so things were hard for me too, kind of trump card. Right. All right, just one more clip before we go. And this one's from the final episode. Uh, John, Dr. Kumanika are talking about what they've learned from all of the things that they've talked about over the series. We talked about the way white advantage, white supremacy, was baked into the country's institutions from the start, 
and those systems have never been fundamentally rebuilt. So that all white supremacy needs to keep chugging along is even here in the 21st century is for most white people to go about our lives uh, being nice and being good non-racists. Mm. Could you say that again? <laughs> right? So, so that, and that includes people working, you know, doing the good work of in, working in the caring professions and social services and even charity work, right? If we just go about our lives, we can have a white supremacist society without individual racists. As it happens, we have individual racists, too. Yeah. But we don't need them to have a white supremacist society. Not to Which we agreed leads to the unavoidable conclusion that to overcome our history and make a more just society, we'll need a lot of white people getting involved, more than ever before, and being willing to sacrifice some of the advantages that come with whiteness. That's right. And, you know, one thing I want to say, people often talk about giving white people and and not just white people, but men being willing to give up power and privilege. And I think that's good. But I want to be clear. This is not just about doing things individually in this kind of sporadic case by case voluntary basis. It's about being willing to participate in transforming our basic systems in ways that will distribute power differently. So we need systems that will distribute power differently. It's not about leaving it up to individuals, really. So it's not about leaving it up to individuals, but transforming our systems to distribute power differently will require individuals and it will require individuals with skin in the game, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Individuals who are finding our shared humanity, who are ready to work hand in hand to create something that, that has honestly never been created before a system of true equity. But I feel like if, if we white people can't see our own whiteness and how it affects this work, then I don't know how we ever address it head on. And, and I guess that's why seeing white feels like such an important piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much more great content in the series. You can find a link uh, in our show notes or just go to sceneonradio.org. That's S-C-E-N-E on radio.org. Yeah. Huge thanks to Scene on Radio for letting us use their content. And my deep apologies to John and his son who created all the music for their podcast. My wildly inartful edits uh, beat up their scores pretty good. But uh, go back, listen to the whole series, enjoy their music, enjoy their content. Meanwhile, we are hard at work on our next season of episodes. And as always, we welcome your feedback. So what do you want to hear about in the next season? What other podcasts should we be listening to and sharing? What choices are you making for your kids? Send us a voice memo or an email to hello at integratedschools.org. And as always, we are happy to be in this with you as we try to know better and do better. See you soon.